Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month. Get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shout-outs, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to gatorsbreakdown.supportingcast.fm to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. This week is co-host Will Miles. You can find him at his site, readandreaction.com, and on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. Will was a whirlwind last week at SEC Media Days, uh, much... Uh, just uh, kind of all-encompassing there and just uh, get, getting everything out, all the content, three episodes last week, uh, all, dealing with all SEC media days, some unexpected news, of course, with uh, all the Texas and Oklahoma rumors that come out about midweek there, but uh, always a fun time. But uh, it was you know different with COVID, and then you get the big news midweek. It was just uh, – it was different. It was, it was so different for SEC media days this year. Yeah, though, I mean, I'm sure it was better, right? Because you didn't, they actually had it this year and we know we're going to yeah. have a season and, and all those sorts of things. And obviously there's, there's been an uptick in cases recently of COVID, but I think everybody's pretty confident we're going to get a season in and, and especially with the vaccine requirements that they've got now for these teams in terms of, I mean, Sankey made it pretty clear, right? If, if, if your team ends up not being able to play because of the virus, then you're going to have to forfeit a game. So, uh, yeah, you know, and obviously Sankey interestingly went after the NCAA a little bit in some yeah. of his comments. Though Emmert had sort of had sort of cut that off at the pass earlier in the week, and then Texas A and M leaking the Texas Oklahoma news was sort of the <laughs> highlight of my week, especially when they tried to pretend like they'd been in on it the entire time. Um, yeah, I, I I suspect that uh, that was sort of a little bit of a face saving thing there at the end. But uh, um, exciting times, man! Exciting times to be in the SEC. I think you know, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later. But it's it's nice that Florida is in a conference that is taking the bull by the horns when it comes to the reallocation of power in college football because we know the Gators aren't going to get left out because of the conference that they're in. And and regardless of where the dust settles, we know Florida is going to be a big part of the college football landscape. Absolutely. We'll get into all that here. Uh, Will, uh, early 2023 commit there for the Gators. We'll get into that here for uh, Mac Barkway. He commits to the Gators not about an hour 
or so before we come live here on Gators Breakdown. We'll get into the theme of the episode as well about it being a rebuilding year for the Gators. Not everybody sees it that way, but most will label it a rebuilding year for the Gators, but it doesn't necessarily mean expectations still can't be high. And we will get into the Texas, Oklahoma, basically uh, pretty much a done deal almost (laughs) all but officially paper signed, all that good stuff. But you know, we know it's going to happen. They did apply. We'll get into all of that here on this episode of Gators Breakdown. So plenty, plenty to get into. If you haven't done so yet, go check out Gators Breakdown Plus. You can go join for as little as $3 a month. As I said, you know, the, the big, the big advantage there is that Discord chat room. A lot of people enjoying that. Really, really good conversation there in that chat room. And uh, find us, if you're watching this on YouTube, you hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out here on Gators Breakdown. So, all right, well, let's move. Uh, before we get into the meat of the episode, we'll quickly talk about the new Gator, Gator, the new Gators commit in 2023. We have to move forward a little bit, Will. This is 2023 now. We're not talking 2022, so we have to talk 2023. But anytime you get a top 100 committed, it's big news. Look, anytime you get a commit, it's big news anyway. Uh, but this is a big, big target for the Gators. Tied in Mike or Mac Markway commits to Florida. Will, 6'4", 250 pounds from St. Louis, Missouri. Chose Florida over Alabama, LSU, Notre Dame, and Ohio State. He is the fourth-ranked tight end in the class of 2023 and the 93rd-ranked prospect overall in the class of 2023. He's the first commit for the Gators in the 2023 class, and it gets it started with a bang. You know, Big credit for uh, tight end coach Tim Brewster here for leading the charge, Dan Mullen, Nick Savage, getting it done as well, being huge parts of this recruitment. And Mark Way visited back, Will, last uh, month in June. Uh, that was all he needed to commit to just a month later to the Gators. He told 24-7 sports Steve Wiltfong he could be a mix of Nick O'Leary and Kyle Pitts and that Brewster would help him get there. So if he's anywhere near those two names, you know, Florida's in good shape there. Um, you know, He's got the recruiting profile there, Will, of a, of a top 100 uh, prospect. And you start talking Kyle Pitts, Nick O'Leary, other special companies when you talk about that special company when you talk about tight ends. And look, Mullen's going to be able to keep him on the field, Will, get creative, use him as a mismatch in multiple ways. He's a really good blocker. He can be on that inline blocker. He can catch. He can run. Um, you know, so, you know, with Friday Night Lights come up, you know, you, this is a, a, a nice get a few days before. And, you know, by the time he gets on, on campus, Will, you know, Florida will have been through some tight ends there. And we'll get in, we can get into that just a bit. But you can get creative. You can keep him on the line. You can split him out. Uh, it, it keeps the offense, you know, with him on the field, it keeps it a little unpredictable with his size and his speed and his his mismatchability. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, like you said, if you get a top 100 guy, it's a big deal. Kicking off the class with a top 100 guy is a big deal. It's been, you know, you look at Florida's class in 2022, there's still only one top 100 recruit in that class. So establishing that 2023, the baseline is a guy who's sitting there in the 90 range may even go up a little bit um, at, you know, those offers don't lie, right? When Alabama wants you, um, you're a pretty good player. The other thing is is his father, Matt Markway, played tight end at Iowa. His cousin, Kyle Markway, plays tight end at South Carolina. So whereas Kyle Pitts was ranked maybe 120th or 130th overall as a recruit, and I think in large part that was because people weren't quite sure whether he was a wide receiver or whether he was a tight end, and you know the big knock on him until last year was really his blocking ability. I don't think that's going to be the problem with Markway. I think Markway is going to be able to come in. He's going to have the instincts for the position. He will have been taught from a young age how to play it, and so then it'll be a question of does he have the athletic ability and is he able to take advantage, and does Florida have the quarterback who's able to help 
help take advantage of having that guy out there. So a big get for the 2023 class, a good way to start it off. Brewster, again, sort of showing that he's the uh, he's the leader when it comes to the recruiting guys on the staff. And, and you know, I mean, why wouldn't you want to come to Florida if you were a tight end after watching yeah. Kyle Pitts play last year? Um, you know that it can be a big part of the offense if you show out. You know they'll get you the ball. You know that Dan Mullen's going to be able to put you to mismatches. And you know you're going to get to split out which I think is important, right? I mean, in order to be a top 10 draft pick, you're going to be a guy who has to be able to go downfield, stretch the field, um, and and sort of take on corner safeties and linebackers at the NFL level. That's why Pitts got drafted so high by the, by the Falcons was because of his receiving ability, not necessarily his blocking ability. And Florida's offense is going to be able to give Markway the ability to show that ability if he's, if he's, able, to, if he's able to develop and become the player that Florida thinks he can be. Yeah, the magic word for tight ends right now is mismatch, and that's exactly what you're looking for in, in, in tight ends. And you get one that can block, you get one that can catch, you can get one that can run after the catch, and you got a pretty good combo there in a tight end. And Will, one more thing before we move on. I mean, you mentioned Brewster's recruiting and kind of being the, the lead guy on the trail for the Gators and mostly at his position. I mean, by the time you know we get this tight end room and by the time <laughs> you, Mark Way gets on campus – the tight end room will possibly consist of Jonathan Odom, Gage Wilcott, and Nick Elksness. And Elksness was getting rave reviews in spring camp here, and he was in Jacksonville. I kept an eye closely on him uh, when he was in town. But, you know, Florida's tight end room, you know, Keon Zipper will be more, more than likely gone uh, by that time unless something happens that he's still around. But more than likely will consist of Jonathan Odom, Gage Wilcott, Nick Elksness. I mean, Gators are going to have some options for quite a while at this tight end position. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, same. Florida's been able to do the same thing at quarterback. I think a big part yeah. of that is is Mullen and his reputation. You know, they've been bringing in guys who are solid at the quarterback position. Maybe not quite ranked as high as Mark Way, but um, you know, you could say the same thing about Wilcox and Odom. Um, I think Brewster has shown that he knows how, that he has chops to recruit before he came to Florida. He's shown those same sort of chops since he's come to Florida. And again, he was sort of gift wrapped a guy who was an unbelievable player, but to be able to take, be able to help take Kyle Pitts from where he was in 2019 and take him to where he was in 2020. I mean, Brewster has to get some of that credit. Right. And so, um, I think when you combine Mullen and you combine Brewster together, that's a pretty effective combination when you start talking about bringing in tight ends and start talking about, you know, one of the things I kind of expected to see last year, we didn't see a lot of it just because the offense was so good. But one of the things I expected to see last year was some two tight end sets where you started to take advantage of some of those, kind of like the Patriots when they had Aaron Hernandez and Rob Grabkowski, they were able to create mismatches by having two tight ends who did very different things on the field. This is going to give Mullen the ability to do that sort of stuff. And when you have a running quarterback and you can have two tight ends in there who can block, but who can also split out and and take advantage of linebackers if they're left in the game, it gives you some real advantages in terms of numbers and in terms of just physical mismatches that you get on those linebackers who are in the game. Or the defense has to decide to play a nickel or a dime, and then you run it down their throat with a running quarterback. So um, I think Florida has decided that that's going to be part of their approach, is that they're going to, especially with Emory Jones and then Anthony Richardson coming after him, that they're going to have guys who can run the ball and having physical tight ends, but guys who can be mismatches is going to be important for the offense to continue rolling. Yep, so good pickup for the Gators. Good start to the 2023 class. Friday night lights coming up this Friday night. So a lot of young guys will be you – know, this won't be no, necessarily Friday night lights year after year when, when they can have it, of course. Not normally for the class they're recruiting for that year. So this year it won't necessarily be too much for the 2022 class. 
you may get a lot of good news coming up from the 2022 class with Friday Night Lights uh, coming up. But it's more about setting the groundwork for a lot of the future 2023, 2024 classes. So a few days before Friday Night Lights, Florida gets a big time commit here and hopefully will as a spark as Friday Night Lights comes up this weekend. So, all right, well, let's get to the meat of the episode. And can expectations still be high in a rebuilding year? And look, a lot of these expectations come from, as, as I mentioned, SEC Media Days uh, was last week. And uh, a lot of expectations are going to come from that, whether it comes from the fans, whether it comes from the pundits, whether it comes from analysts out there. You know, a lot of uh, – you know, you, you, Everybody pretty much had their mind made up where Florida or anybody's going to be going into last week. But we get uh, a lot of thought because a lot of the SEC media puts their thoughts out there. If you just missed it last week, SEC predicted order of finish. No surprise. Georgia was picked to win the East. Alabama was picked to win the West. Uh, We've talked months about it. That was going to be the case here with everything Florida was losing uh, in 2020 coming into 2021 that, uh, you know, given – JT Daniels love Georgia's finished to the season last year uh, and Florida's finished to the season last year that Georgia was going to be getting a whole lot of preseason love uh, going into the 2021 season. If you missed it for the East, Georgia, Florida, Kentucky was third, Missouri fourth, Tennessee, South Carolina, Vanderbilt rounds out the East and then go to the West, Alabama, Texas A&M, LSU third, Ole Miss, Auburn, Arkansas, Mississippi State, and the media voted Alabama to be the champion of the SEC for the 2021 season. Well, I don't think it's a negative connotation. I think it gets that connotation too much for rebuilding year. I think it's okay to label it a rebuilding year. Doesn't mean a team can't have success. Look, in my eyes, in some ways, Alabama is rebuilding everything that they lost. Now they're better set up for it, for not there to be a job. I think, you know, it is possible to be, everybody wants to say, are you rebuilding or reloading? I, I you can put, you can have both at the same time. That's what Alabama does. They rebuild and they reload all at the same time. You know, but with the with the production Florida lost on the offensive side of the ball and the defense that needs to show mass improvement, you know, labeling it a rebuilding year, it it's uh, it, it's okay with me. I, I don't think it's a, a bad connotation. I think some people can use it as a negative connotation there. And but look, anytime you had the projection Florida had last season of winning the East with a lot of experienced players. And then shifting in philosophy, losing all that talent. Uh, and, you know, for, for on offense, you know, for, it's definitely a rebuild on offense for what we're going to see there. Uh, but that doesn't mean Florida can't beat Alabama. Doesn't mean, you know, Florida can't beat Georgia, LSU in, in 2021 because it could be labeled a rebuilding season. You know, those teams we consider roster talent to be better at the level of Florida. But, you know, it certainly means Dan Mullen has his work cut out for him. Uh, and to extend that, of course, Todd Grant. Yeah, I mean, so obviously Grantham has the work cut out for him, I think is is the understatement of the year right there. But um, look, Florida had the seventh ranked roster when it came to talent last year from 24-7 sports, you know, behind LSU, Texas, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, and Georgia. And then they got, um, you know, they obviously got really good performances from Kyle Trask and Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony, and I think that sort of put them in that echelon, right? I mean, they were at least in the same breath with those teams until that game against LSU. 
And now you're losing all those guys, obviously, on offense, but you're also losing some guys on the defensive side of the ball that maybe there's some addition by subtraction. Guys like Donovan Steiner, Brad Stewart, Sean Davis, um, Tadaryl Slayton, Marco Wilson, Kyrie Campbell. Those are all guys who've been a big part of the Gator program, but weren't necessarily guys who were all that reliable last year. And so you're bringing in youth, but at the same time, you know, the guys that they're replacing are people who struggled. So it's not something where they had a stout defense and now you're replacing all those guys. It's they had a sieve for a defense and now you're replacing those guys. Those guys, And so maybe things get better along that line. The other thing is, is that the guys that they're losing are not necessarily the guys who were keeping their talent rating all that high, right? I mean, so the reason the Gators were seventh overall in the roster rankings is because of all the transfers they brought in. Guys like Justin Shorter, guys like Demarcus Bowman now are going to add to that guys like Kyrie Elam, Lorenzo Lingard, Britton Cox, Gervon Dexter, Derek Wingo, Xavier Henderson, Chris Bogle, Jacob Copeland. These are all Dan Mullen recruits, guys who haven't necessarily been enormous contributors yet, but are guys who have the talent profile to be large level contributors to the program. And up until now, it's been sort of Dan Mullen bleeding along the, the program with Jim McElwain recruits. Well, now we get to see what he gets to do with his own recruits, guys that he's brought in guys that Todd Grantham's brought in, and guys who have higher talent profiles than the guys that they're replacing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be better players, but especially on the defensive side of the ball, you can see where there might be some optimism from the standpoint of just, you know, sort of an addition by subtraction type of uh, type of endeavor. I, I still, I mean, you know, whenever you got a guy who finishes fourth in the Heisman Trophy and another yeah. guy who gets drafted top five in the NFL draft, and, and he not was the same. And he was tenth in the Heisman. <laughs> yeah, and only because he's a tight end, and because he missed yeah. a few games, right? right? I mean, if he'd have played the LSU game, if he'd have finished the Georgia game, I think maybe we might be having a different conversation about where he yeah. finished. So when you've got that level, and I mean, you know, Kyle oh, Trask, before you move on, Kyle Pitts, the top-rated player in Madden in the new Madden video game as well. <laughs> hey, there you go, man. <laughs> well, top-rated top, top rookie. Let me let me rephrase that. All right. I was going to say, he's, he's higher ranked than Brady. That's, that's amazing. But uh, no, so, you know, whenever you lose guys like that, like yeah. generational talents, you're going to struggle a little bit. I mean, you know, when, when Percy Harvin left, that left a hole in Florida's offense in 2009. And, and it didn't mean that and Florida's all, offense and all that was filled with talent. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, you, you lose a guy like Rex Grossman and all of a sudden the offense takes a step back after he leaves and, you know, you, you lose, Tim Tebow, obviously, the the offense takes a step back there. So, you know, Trask had a for season a decade, last year. For a decade. <laughs> that, that too. So hopefully that's not what happens. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think we're confident that somebody like Emory Jones or, or Anthony yeah. Richardson is going to be able to step in and keep the train going. But I think we were confident John Brantley was going to be able to do that too. And so there's always a risk, right? There's a risk when you bring in a new quarterback that he's going to struggle. But that's one of the reasons why I think we have hope for week through week three against Alabama is that, you know, Bryce Young is a brand new quarterback at Alabama as well. And you're not necessarily going to get his best in week three on the road, a true road game. You know, first time he will have experienced anything like the swamp um, in, in terms of being a hostile environment. And so Florida has a shot, right? I mean, I, I think rebuilding is interesting. I've called it that a few times this offseason. People have sort of gotten a little bit upset with me. But, you know, you look at um, 
you look at Steve Spurrier. He goes nine and two his first year, ten and two second, nine and four his second, his third year, which is kind of what Mullen did last year, right? Eight and four, and then eleven and two, ten and two, and that, those were sort of reloading to prepare for ninety five and ninety six, right? It was breaking in Danny Werfel, figuring out Werfel, and was it Ian that he got um, sort of mix and matched with there in nineteen ninety three? Um, yeah, Danny Werfel and Terry Dean getting mixed and matched there in nineteen ninety three, and it wasn't until they finally settled on Werfel in ninety five and 96 that all of a sudden the program took off we're kind of at that same place when you think about it in terms of Mullen has slowly built the talent level up it's definitely higher than it was under Jim McElwain um you know and and in 95 and 96 you didn't necessarily have Alabama in the conference but you did have Florida State in those early 90s where Spurrier Spurrier lost a lot of those early games to Bobby Bowden and the team might have been playing for a championship much much earlier if they hadn't had to go up against the Seminoles every year obviously the Seminoles not a problem now but you got Alabama being a problem now. And so I can envision a scenario where you look at it and say, this is very similar to 1990, uh, you know, in terms of the start of the Mullen era and the start of the Spurrier era, era where it took five or six years to get to a place where Florida, I mean, Florida was consistently a top 10 program from 1990 until 1994, but they weren't a top tier, you know, hey, we're always competing for the national championship until 1995. Yep. And Chris already brings it up here. Gators lost Jefferson, Hammond, Swain, Cleveland, Piran after 2019. And look at 2020, still have Copeland, Henderson, Shorter, Zipperer, Whittemore. Now adding five-star running backs, and the playbook is wide open. Absolutely. And that's part of going, you know, we we definitely agree that the talent profile has been raised. And I think that's an okay reason. Actually, that's a good reason to have still high expectations because the talent is there. As Will said, the recruiting profile is there for those guys. Now it's just about, you know, maybe – some of the and a couple of those guys have some a lot of experience. You know, Copeland Shorter played a lot last year, especially Copeland. He's been in this offense uh, for, for Dan Mullen. You know, it's, it's mainly just about the shift in offense. And look, last year, those last three games, especially on the national side, the national pundit side, going to leave a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth there uh, of how they they view Florida. I think it's overvalued. It may get that. It may get into that just a little bit, but. You know, a lot of sour taste there in, in national pundit size when you look at Florida. Look, we weren't satisfied with the way last season ended as, either. And I think that plays a whole lot into expectations outside of the fan base. And I think the fan base, you know, whether glass half full, glass half empty, ever, you know, whatever way, I think we can agree the talent level is there. Well, it's more about experience. You know, you lost a lot of experience. One reason Florida was picked last year in 2020, you know, going back a year ago at SEC, well, not really SEC media days, but SEC media did vote for who was going to win the conference. Florida was picked, and Florida was picked above Georgia. And a lot of a lot of credit given to Kyle Trask, a lot of credit given to Dan Mullen, Kyle Pitts, uh, and, and that experience. Georgia's schedule comes into play. Florida's schedule comes into play this year with, with who Georgia's bringing back, much like Florida bringing back a quarterback like they did last year. So you see the expectation, and, and that's where I, I also go, and I mentioned it last week. I, yes, recruiting talent, you can – a lot of people are going to say there's a gap there between Florida and Georgia. I think when you take the programs as a whole, that gap gap shrinks a little bit. I think Florida and Georgia are a little closer than a lot of outside the fan base people think. It's a little bit closer there. But, you know, will a lot of this, no matter the circumstances, Gator Nation, demand, Gator, Gator Nation has high expectations. And, and Dan Mullen has spoken on it. There's a Gator standard you live up to, you play, you're supposed to compete for championships. Now, look, there are realistic expectations that come some years because of coaching changing transitions or 
huge transitions like you have at quarterback this year and, and maybe uh, system changes. But besides that, you know, feds expect a high product on the field most of the time, year in and year out. Well, I mean, and they should, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think you're underselling it a little bit when you look at the Georgia-Florida talent gap. It's pretty significant, and, and that significance means that that game is probably a 60-40 or 65-35 advantage for Georgia going in. And the question then is how much can Dan Mullen close that gap in terms of his ability to coach and, and how much – pressure can they put on JT Daniels because one of the things that we didn't see very much last year was JT Daniels having to deal with pressure and he got sacked an awful lot if you were going to look at one one sort of um you know hole in his armor in terms of being able to play quarterback it's that even at USC beforehand and then last year at Georgia he took an awful lot of sacks and those sacks can turn into turnovers and those turnovers can turn into points real quick the other direction momentum changes really quickly and then all of a sudden Florida's got a big lead and and you're playing catch up but you know as far as expectations I mean one of the reasons I so it's gonna feel like I think there are gonna be some games where we're like really frustrated at the way things feel just because it doesn't feel like the team's in control like they were last year. But at the same time, it's only two games this year where Florida's going to go in as an underdog. I mean, maybe three if you figure that somebody thinks they're an underdog at LSU. But that's just because they're going into Baton Rouge. Right. And right and right now, that's what it is. You know, three, those three games, Bama, Georgia, LSU. But, yeah, going to your point, if the season plays out, in some way we think it can, and LSU doesn't necessarily improve last year. Florida's still rolling along. You're right. It could just be two games. Well, so that's the thing, right? I think the team can be worse overall than last year's team. Maybe at least at least worse on the offensive side of the ball, definitely. I don't know if they'll be worse on the defensive side of the ball. <laughs> I don't think they're going to be like leaps and bounds better. I think the team overall can be a less solid team, but still have a better record, right? So you end up nine and three or you end up 10 and two just because you're, you know, we should beat Tennessee, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Samford, Missouri, and Florida State, right? Like those should be just check it. You win that, and that, that's the way Florida's always been in the past when Florida's been on a roll, and Mullen is getting the program back to that point, right, where we had sort of the the unexpected loss against Kentucky and Missouri that first year, but then only lost the teams we were supposed to lose to in 2019, and then obviously the unexpected loss to, to LSU last year. But LSU, still a talented team, still a dangerous team, just a team that Florida shouldn't have lost to last year. But beyond that, you know, th- there are – there are less of those hiccups. The hiccups are become and last year all of those games that they won, they won by more than two touchdowns. So they go zero and three in one score games. They likely aren't going to do that again. Um, so again, I, I think when we look at it, it's going to be a less explosive offense. I think that's probably true. I think the defense will be able to keep people in front of them, maybe a little bit better, but it's still going to be frustrating. And Florida isn't necessarily going to beat everybody by two touchdowns on their schedule. But I think we might look up at the end of the year and go, "Huh, ten and two. We're in another. You know, we're in another." Uh, you know, New Year's Day bowl game, that's kind of a big deal. And, you know, we'll see which team actually has players show up for the bowl game. Yeah, I think with overall roster improvement since Dan Mullen's been here, that's why I think, you know, if the, the talent profile comes together, 10 and 2 is definitely attainable. And then you take your chances going from there. And, and I think you build from 10 and 2. Uh, if, you know, that LSU game, and uh, I'll probably go do an episode soon about schedule and how important that game is and all that. But, Will, you've you've talked about years for how kind of a linchpin that game is just historically for Florida. And then uh, I think it's pretty much the same for the 2021 season as well. Will, I think you got something, you got, you got something Will? Well, I was just going to say that basically – 
it's funny, 10 and two is kind of the baseline for Florida in terms of expectations at this point. And nine and three would be a little bit of a disappointment. I think 11 and one, we'd be excited about 11 and one. And it's the same thing it's always been ever since we've sort of been talking about recruiting in the ninth, 10th, 11th spot is if they hit lightning in a bottle with Emory Jones or with Anthony Richardson and they get outstanding elite quarterback play, then you've got a championship team. But that was always the prerequisite based on even the talent profile they have now that to compete with Georgia and to compete with Alabama and even to compete with LSU, you're going to need elite quarterback play. They got it last year, but at the same time had so many problems on the defensive side of the ball, they couldn't put everything together. That's the danger when it comes to recruiting in that range. It's not necessarily that you don't have enough players to pull off the upset or even that it is an upset. You might end up some years with a better team but you need that elite quarterback play to sort of push you over the edge. So it's one of those things where, you know, a rebuilding year is sort of in my mind, finding out is Emory Jones, that guy mm. or finding out is Anthony Richardson, that guy or finding out is somebody else, that guy, right. And, and getting them in there and getting the experience. And if that means you sacrifice a game that you otherwise wouldn't, I still think it's worth it because you got to find that guy. That's the only way you're going to win a title. Well, I got asked this last week at SEC Media Days on Radio Row a, cu- a couple times, and just the expectation going into year four for Dan Mullen and really kind of coming off of year three and everybody the, the finish of you know the 2020 season, and you know really the the gap that was going to and this was before the media voting had even come out, but you know Georgia gets 124 first place votes at SEC Media Days, Florida only gets seven. And, you know, games have to be played. Those are only predictions. Uh, but, you know, it was a storyline. It is, it is, and it is a storyline. Um, but, you know, and kind of asked in a way, you know, should that be the expectation? You know, for, for Dan Mullen team going into year four, coming off a year where you won the SEC East, you pounded Georgia. But the perception is Georgia's the easy pick the very next season. And, you know, should it be that way? Should that be the perception from pundits, from SEC Network, from national pundits there. Uh, and, you know, I'm going, we're going on Radio Row and getting asked that question, you know, the, the fall from grace and at the end of 2020 when everything was pointing up for Florida going into the final three games of the season, you know, should the expectation be just because of those three games, Georgia's the overwhelming favorite the very next year? A- absolutely. I mean, so – I think the SEC media has done the right thing picking Georgia. I think Florida has a shot to win the East. But I said earlier, it's a 65-35 proposition based on the talent profiles. And lo and behold, Florida has won one out of three when it comes to when it comes to the games against Georgia when Dan Mullen's been there. 33% of the games, right? And and so that's one, the – one and two. Yeah, one out of three, right? So one and oh, one yeah, two. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. so they're one and two. So they've won 33% of the games. And so that's the expectation that I sort of have is that if Dan Mullen is overperforming expectations, then he's going to win this year. And and all this, if he wins 50% of his games against Georgia, he's outperforming the expectations based on the recruiting sort of deficit that, he, that he's going against every year. Is that good enough for Florida fans? That's a question that only different Florida fans can answer because certainly um, a 500 record against Georgia was never good enough for Steve Spurrier. At the same time, I think he had a little bit below 500 record against Florida State. And so, you know, would we have had that same perception if he hadn't gotten over the hump and won the national title? I mean, there's also the fact that he was a favored son coming back after having won the Heisman and that the program hadn't had that kind of success before. But um, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that the – 
the SEC media is doing what they should do, which is pick the team that is the most likely to win the East. And that doesn't mean that Florida can't win the East. It just means that if you put things together and I mean, we make fun of Georgia because especially Georgia fans, because they sort of make excuses for that game last year. But, you know, you, you do have Stetson Bennett getting hit. And all of a sudden, his shoulders not play, not not right, and they got to bring in a backup. You do have Richard LeCount getting injured right before the game, so they're bringing in replacements in the secondary. And you know, part of the recruiting is having guys to be able to step in. At the same time, um, you know, it was fourteen nothing. I guarantee you we were all a little bit nervous at that point when it was fourteen to nothing. And then Florida started to get things on a roll. Yeah, Florida took advantage of some things, but. It, does Florida have the ability to take advantage of those same things this year without Kadarius Tony, without Kyle Pitts, and without Kyle Trask? Can they isolate those things on the Georgia defense and really take advantage of it? That's a key question, and it's not something that can be answered by going back and looking at how Emory Jones played against Auburn two years ago. It just can't. And so, um, you know, again, I, I think there is, if you simulate this a thousand times, I think there are many, many times where Florida wins the East. But I think more often than not, Georgia's going to win the East. And you can say the same thing about the West, right? That that Auburn and LSU have popped up from time to time and won the West. But Alabama's probably been picked every year now for the past decade, right? Uh-huh. It's it's not a slight to LSU or Auburn that they're picking Alabama. It's the, it's the probabilities, right? Like people who've picked Alabama have probably been right, what, seven out of the last 10 years? Yeah, right. And believe would, me, would, would be my guess. I didn't want- I didn't want to pick Georgia when I filled out my media ballot. <laughs> I, I hate that feeling. I get nauseous when I have to say, when I have to click and drag Georgia over to the one spot. I, I, I don't like it. I hate it. <laughs> well, I mean, none of us like it, right? But yeah. the reality is we well, have to. We have the to, most so, likely outcome. And, well, yeah, and just it. like Mullen, just like Mullen talks about a Gator standard, there, there is an analysis that you have to do when you look at these things. I actually think Ole Miss is probably the team that's getting overlooked in the SEC. I think Lane Kiffin's going to have a really good team next year. I think they're going to improve on defense as well now that they're not playing all SEC teams, um, have some cupcakes to sort of get some confidence. Matt Corral was really good last year. And, um, you know, I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if that's a team kind of like Texas A&M back in the Johnny Manziel days was able to knock off Alabama and A&M didn't necessarily make it to the SEC championship game, but they were able to knock off Alabama and sort of put Alabama at a deficit to where they weren't able to make it to the championship game. Um, that's something that, that you might want to look out for this year in, in the West, I think, is that Ole Miss is going to be the team that sort of surprises people. And again, I already mentioned that you've got a new quarterback at Alabama. You mentioned Alabama's reloading. They're not necessarily rebuilding, at least based on the talent profile. But again, if, you, if your quarterback ends up being more Jake Coker than than Tua or more Jake Coker than Mac than Mac Jones, then all of a sudden that team becomes much more beatable because you've got a guy who's a game manager rather than a guy who's who's lighting things up. And you know, Alabama was really, really difficult to beat last year because they were putting up a bunch of points, but the defense wasn't all that great early on in the year. And so Florida gets some third game of the year. We'll see what happens, right? If Alabama's defense is still trying to figure it out, and if their offense is sort of sputtering because the quarterback's more like a game manager than somebody who can really push the ball down the field, then Florida's got a shot. So, And, I mean, you know, if you come out of that game having lost 20 to 23, I mean, is is – does that kind of change your expectations in terms of it being a rebuilding year or how good are, how good can this team be? And that sort of stuff. I mean, we're benchmarking ourselves against Alabama in that game. Uh, You know, you lose 56 to three and all of a sudden you are, all right, we still got a lot of work to do. 
Um, But if it's a close game, then that kind of, I think, even a close loss kind of propels a team like Florida forward where they go, okay, like last year when we had Pitts, Tony, and Trask, we were able to stick with them. But this year when we didn't have those guys, we were able to stick with them. And that might give them the confidence to sort of push things forward and maybe give Georgia a better game than some of us anticipate early in the year. Yeah, this year, Will, is going to really stick the notion of Dan Mullen, the developer. I mean, we you, you lose Trask, you, you're a great Heisman finalist quarterback, you lose Pitts, you lose Tony, and guys who haven't been on the field a whole lot now are going to be taking over in, you know, in those positions. Um, and now I think, you know, the development from the last few years is really going to, you know, really have to show out in 2021. And, you know, part of the, part of the rebuild is getting those new faces out there. Yeah. They may have played. Yeah. They've gotten some experience. Yeah. They're not true freshmen out there, but it's still a rebuild because there's just not the playing time experience for a lot of the offense, a lot of the defense, especially back there in that secondary and your transfers there uh, up front on the defensive line. So, you know, SEC media picks it away that, uh, you know, for, for UGA to get a nod uh, over Florida, uh, and it's not as a re- rebuilding year overall for Georgia. They do have to rebuild a defense, but of course, it's not necessarily labeled a rebuild for the Dogs. Um, seems like they finally know what they want to do uh, on, on offense. The question is, can they produce? Like many are expecting, uh, but also what we saw last week, Will, was uh, Florida being picked second to Georgia by 139 points. But you know, Florida was picked second, but you know, Kentucky picked third. Florida was pretty solidified there in that second spot from second to third. Now we, but we still heard a whole lot of, you know, uh, Cole Kublik and, and Jordan Rogers, a lot of Kentucky, a lot of Missouri love uh, those teams rising above Florida because of the Florida rebuild and many out there wanting to be just different. Keep talking up Kentucky as the team that will break through. Uh, look, and, and I put that on Twitter. I don't call many teams out. Uh, it's just, what I, it's just not my style, but you know, th- this Kentucky love for me, I, I don't get it. We've heard this every year since 2018 because of that great 2018 year that they had it together. Look, I, I like the direction of Kentucky under Mark Stoops, their change uh, at offensive coordinator, I think is the right move. I think it will take some time. I think the transition will take some time for Kentucky, but I, you know, a part of this rebuild and a part of the expectations is. For, for some out there is Kentucky and even maybe Missouri can jump Florida uh, this year for that second spot in the SEC East. Um, and they like the move for Kentucky for an offensive coordinator and a new quarterback they see as the missing piece uh, for a team that's built in, a, in, in an image in the trenches and pretty good on the defensive side of the ball. You know, I, I really think many pundits out there overvalue Florida's fall last season and really, you know, are, are just looking – for reasons not to pick Florida and pick a team like Kentucky and Missouri just to be different. Yeah. I don't get the Kentucky pick, right? I mean, I I have seen nothing from their offense over the last five years, other than the game where Benny Snell ran roughshod over Florida, but I haven't really seen any, anything that makes me say, okay, this is why, Kentucky is going to be that much better this year than last year. Um, they do have quite a bit coming back, I think, on the offensive line, and so maybe the thought process there is they'll be able to be able to maul some people. But you know, Florida basically sleptwalked through that game last year, 
and still beat them by two touchdowns and beat them pretty easily. Now, granted, Florida, I think, does need to go to Lexington this year. So maybe you look at that and say, okay, well, you know, the Gators are going to have to go to Kentucky. But, you know, it's early enough in the year. It's not going to be that cold. That stadium isn't really all that loud. Um, you know, and, and again, until they have a quarterback that scares me, I'm just not even really going to take them all that seriously. I, I do think that Missouri, in some respects, is the team that I would look for in terms of being able to come up and bite a team like Florida or even a, a team like Georgia. You know, you've got Connor Bazelak came in, played very well last year as a freshman, 7.3 yards per attempt, 132 QB rating. Um, you know, that is the kind of profile of a guy who can be not necessarily elite, but somebody who can have a day where he's able to pick pick teams apart. And considering that Florida's going to have a very young defensive back, um, a set of defensive backs, you know, maybe that's an opportunity for Missouri to take advantage. But again, I think it's the same thing that I said about Georgia is that the wise thing to do is to pick Georgia first because of the talent that Georgia has because of JT Daniels because of you know Kirby Smart's going to have him playing a pretty good deep pretty good brand of defense but I think the same thing you can say about Kentucky versus versus Florida or Missouri versus Florida is that you know Dan Mullen's going to have an offense that's pretty good just based on his history at Mississippi State what he's been able to do at Florida with Felipe Franks and Kyle Trask now he's got his hand-picked guy there and Emory Jones coming in to play quarterback you expect the offense can still be pretty good and not necessarily be the kind of team that's going to be susceptible to those sorts of upsets, right? It's going to be a team that's going to be able to control the game and run the ball and move the ball down the field methodically. And as long as they can avoid turnovers, they'll be able to do that. So, you know, I, I don't think Florida's invincible. I think it's possible. Again, you go back to the thousand simulations. Are there some situations where Kentucky or Missouri maybe jumps on top? I actually don't think there's many where Kentucky does. Um, but I think Missouri probably has an opportunity. You know, I think Drinkwitz did a pretty decent job last year. Obviously, he's pretty confident in himself. Um, but he also just lit a little bit of a fuse there where, uh, you know, you might see some timeouts there in the fourth quarter by Dan Mullen if they're up by 40. And the advantage Missouri usually has against Florida is it's an 11 a.m. game. It's in Columbia. None of the Gators want to be there. It's cold. They've just gotten off either an emotional win or an emotional loss against Georgia either a week or two prior, and Missouri's able to kind of come and bite them. It's not going to happen this year, right? Drinkwitz decided he wanted to call out Florida, decided he wanted to call out Mullen, even though his guy was the one who started it by making it by taking a dirty hit and a cheap shot on Trask. Um, you know, but he decided he wanted to start that. You can bet that they'll be playing that there in the uh, Florida facility before they go to Missouri. So I think maybe maybe, uh, maybe some of those guys at SEC Media Day picked Missouri second before they had heard what Drinkwitz had to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't think – most time you roll into SEC Media Day, you pretty much know who you're picking and where you're picking them, no matter what's being said or, or done there at SEC Media Days. All right, some uh, Gators Breakdown Plus members uh, left their thoughts. Well, I brought this topic up a few weeks there uh, in the chat room. I'll start off with Sorax. He goes, I see it more of a – look, a lot of this is probably semantics and how you want to label uh, things here. So he goes, I see it – this is from Sorax here on Gators Breakdown Plus. I see it as more of a retooling year. Sure, we lost top playmakers, but the cupboard wasn't left empty. The more significant changes are on a new offensive system, new coaches, and hopefully defensive scheme. Defenstrator 19, Dustin Woolbright says, yes, I classify as a rebuilding year, but I'm still expecting 10 wins in the New New Year's Six Bowl. The nature of college football and recruiting should take away the ups and downs of teams having rebuilding years. To me, a rebuilding year in college football is more keeping the status quo for a year and not suddenly losing five or six games in the season. 
Litigator says, on a rebuilding year, every team we are playing lost just as much as we did in various places. No excuses. Southern Gator, I tend to think of it as a restructuring year, and if that makes sense, we are restructuring the offense back to Mullen style, and while the perception is we take a big step back, I don't think so. We aren't learning a new, we aren't learning a new scheme. This staff knows this scheme in and out. Just how fast does the offensive line adjust? No, we won't throw for 400 yards a game, but give me 275 through the air, 225 on the ground, and watch us light it up. Fluke says, also, I don't think of it as a rebuilding year. I think it's definitely going to look different, but I think Mullen and company will be more comfy with the players that fit their normal system. I think this would, I think this could be very good building year, especially with the chemistry that seems to be boiling in Gainesville. Last one, this was from Twitter, Riverside LAX 39. Florida in year four with Mullen, anything less than 10 and two with close losses to Bama and Georgia is a failure of a season. Mullen needs to win that LSU game. I mainly see next year as a transition year, lots of young players that would be back for 2022, more focused on the team setting the foundation to make a championship run in 2022. Yes, I agree. Any year that isn't competing for championships is a failure. Well, a lot there. A couple ones that I brought up is going back to the Mullen system. I think Mullen said it best last week. He doesn't have a system anymore. He's proven it different styles of quarterback at Mississippi state, different styles of quarterback at Florida. His system is whatever quarterback he has. <laughs> so he's going to adjust. And his system is just an offense that he will adapt to his quarterback to he, he, he will adapt to his players. Uh, I don't think just because a quarterback is dual threat, just because a quarterback is mobile, that it's just now the damn Mullen system. Dan Mullen system is whatever his quarterback is. Uh, and also the, um, and I, I like this, and I think this is where I go with it as well. Whether it's rebuilding year, retooling year, restructuring, whatever, you, by the time the 21, 2021 season ends, I need to feel good about where Florida's headed for 2022. I like the potential uh, of 2022. We talked about the recruiting profile. Uh, I don't know if you're switching quarterbacks or not from Emory Jones to Anthony Richardson, maybe depending on how much success Emory Jones has, whether he decides to test NFL water, goes goes on uh, to that. We'll, we'll see. But by the time the 2021 season ends, I need to feel good about where we're heading in 2022. And that means it could be 11-1. and one, It could be 10-2. and two, It could be even more, more than that. Um, you start getting – eight and four, seven and five range, then I'm not sure where my confidence lies at the end of the season. You will have to kind of maybe see how it plays out. But by the time 2021 ends, I need to feel good heading into 2022. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in all those tweets you had there, basically everybody said 10 and two, right? Yeah. And and what that does, and, and so whether you want to call it a rebuilding year, a transition year or whatever, the reality is, is 10 and two doesn't get you in the playoff. And so, especially not with the schedule that Florida has, because that's likely a loss to Alabama and a loss to Georgia, you're not getting into the playoff at 10 and two. And so the expectations for 2021 for fans, at least the fans that you read out, is not a championship. It's not an SEC championship. It's not a national championship. And so in my mind, that's a rebuilding year at the University of Florida. Now, um, you know, you can argue about exactly what you want to call it, but the Gator standard is SEC titles and national titles and 
Florida has been building up to that the last three years. And I think, you know, Dustin, I think is the one who said that, you know, the status quo, just not going backwards is sort of his expectation this year is there's all this turnover. And yeah, I think that maybe is the case, right? We're all sort of looking at it saying 10 and two, if we get elite quarterback play, you get to, or if you get good quarterback play, you get to 11 and one. If you go elite quarterback play, then you're really competing for something. And there's an, there's a chance that Florida gets that kind of quarterback play. But I don't know that anybody is certain of it. I think, again, if you do the simulations, you're sort of sitting there saying, eh, I think about 50% of the time we're going to get a guy who sort of is a little bit better than Felipe Franks, at least under Dan Mullen. I think sometimes we might get somebody who's as good as Kyle Trask, but in a different way. And I think there are probably going to be some times where you'd say, hmm, uh, yeah, we didn't really get what we thought we were going to get out of the quarterback. And so, but even in that, with the schedule the way it is, you're sitting there nine and three to eleven and one, and that's sort of where you're at. But you're not competing for championships, and that's sort of I think why, you know, we sort of term this a rebuilding year because this is a year where, like you said, at the end of the year, you got to feel comfortable that you're going to be competing for a championship in 2022. That you're building towards that. That you're finding the quarterback that you need for 2022. That you're finding the guys on defense, especially in the secondary, who are going to be able to step up. That, again, you're recruiting guys who are going to be able to come in as true freshmen and help you in that 2022 season because you might need some extra depth there. All of those things sort of coming together and getting all that built into 2022, I think, is what is that you would walk out of 2021 saying this is this is a successful season. Whereas if you've had a bunch of quarter, if you've had two quarterbacks or three quarterbacks who haven't played all that well, if none of the five star running backs have really been able to get all that many carries, if the offensive line is still struggling in terms of running the ball, if the defense is still giving up big plays, and maybe we squeaked out a couple of close ones, and you're still ten and two but you didn't really feel like you should be 10 and two. You sort of look at it and go, we got kind of lucky at a couple of those games. Then it's a different feel. So I think it's kind of like last year, right? If the season had ended at eight and one and you know, if COVID had just taken out the season at eight and one and we don't play those last three games, I think people feel a lot different about 2021. I think we still sit here and say there's a lot of transition, but I think everybody says last season was a major step forward for the program. I think those last three losses to end the season, make people feel a little bit differently about whether last year was really a step. And that's maybe the thing that I think um, concerns me about the stagnation is, is that if you consider last year sort of a stagnation, now obviously the offense advanced, but the defense took a step back. Then if the offense advances this year and the defense advances a little bit, well, now you're sitting there sort of saying, okay, it's still stagnant, still the same place that it is. So I I, I think you're right. I, I think at the end of the day, it's going to be, it's going to be a feel thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's not even because you're not necessarily going into it with championship expectations. It's the question is going to be, how do you feel after that Florida State game at the end of the year? How do you feel after the bowl game? And that's an interesting place to be because different fans are going to feel different things depending mm-hmm. upon depending upon what exactly they were looking for coming into the year. Um, and so it's going to be an interesting debate as as the season goes on. Um, obviously, if, if Mullen can pull off some upsets early, maybe we all feel good by the time we get to the end of the year and then there isn't much of a debate there. But I suspect there's probably going to be a contingent of people who say it wasn't quite good enough. And there's going to be a contingent of people who say, hey, this was excellent. We were expecting to go to sit there in that nine and three, ten and two range. That's exactly what we got. So it'll be interesting to see how people feel about it at the end of the year. Yep. Chris Sorley, man, thanks for the donations here. One more quote, one more uh, YouTube comment from him. Bryce Young will choke in the swamp. He's unproven. Why respect him more than Jones? 
And look, uh, I, I ranked my SEC quarterbacks a couple weeks ago here on Gators Breakdown. I had Emory Jones above Bryce, Bryce Young, uh, as you said. It's a little bit of unproven there. Now he does get the benefit of the doubt, and I think he should just because highly ranked quarterback. You know, we put a lot of stock in recruiting rankings. Doesn't mean he'll turn out to be Tua, Hurts, uh, Mac Jones, or Mac Jones wasn't highly recruited, but, you know, the, but there you go. It is just a, a line of Alabama quarterbacks that, he gets the benefit of the doubt because of the talent around him, uh, an Alabama quarterback. But as I said, I do think uh, we have to weigh seeing at least some of Emory Jones uh, and snapshots of Emory Jones, and that's why I'd have him above Bryce Young going into the 2021 season as well. So, Chris, man, thanks for um, those comments there. Uh, Will, we can't uh, bury the lead, um, but you, any, anything left, Will, right there? Oh, the only thing I would say is the reason that I respect Bryce jo- Bryce Jones is because the it's not necessarily because of his play. It's because of Alabama's right that you yeah. just read down Alabama thirteen and 0, 11 and two, fourteen and one, thirteen and one, fourteen and one, fourteen and one. So <laughs> they've only lost two games once in the last six seasons, um, and three of those have ended in national championships, and five of those have ended up in the playoff. And so um, I think really it's a nod to Nick Saban, it's a nod to his program, it's a nod to what he's built there to say, hey, we're taking them seriously, even though they've got the changeover quarterback. I think the changeover quarterback gives you some hope right I mean if Mac Jones came back and was and was uh starting at quarterback again this year I'd be like oh we got no shot <laughs> but if Ralph Young was at Florida Dan Mullen's reputation for developing quarterbacks you know no matter who's Alabama's brought in they've developed quarterbacks and won championships with them if Bryce Young was at Florida under the same scenario he's in at Alabama we would still feel really good about Bryce Young so that's Absolutely. yeah so that's that's how I would you know translate it uh, you, you can feel good about a, a quarterback at Alabama even though they haven't played because if that same quarterback was here under Dan Mullet I feel the exact same way so yeah but again I mean there's there's a shot right and that yeah. that is one of the things is that we're not going to know until kickoff really how he's able, yep yeah, how he's able to respond that there are there are outside circumstances that are different than a normal Alabama jugger, juggernaut that's coming into the swamp. And so um, I'm excited about it. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to be there um, and uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun to take that one in for sure. All right. Well, we got to get into the big headline from the last week in whole, all of college football, especially pinpointed here in the SEC, Oklahoma, Texas, Coming to the SEC, it's pretty much a done deal, of course. Just dotting I's, crossing T's, making sure that they are uh, covering all bases <laughs> for this move uh, eventually when it happens. Here we go. Oklahoma, Texas, today on Tuesday, it is made public. They did apply or are, are applying for SEC membership. So that's step one. On the heels of that, Will, Greg Sankey. Southeastern Conference Commissioner finally acknowledges everything that's going on there. His statement today, the University of Oklahoma and the University of Texas, two esteemed academic institutions with storied athletic programs, today submitted formal requests for invitations to become members of the Southeastern Conference in 2025. While the SEC has not proactively sought out new members, we will pursue significant change when there is a clear consensus among our members that such actions will further enrich the experience of our student athletes and lead to greater academic and athletic achievement across our campuses. 
The presidents and chancellors of the SEC in their capacity as the conference's chief executive officers will consider these requests in the near future. Per the bylaws of the SEC, a vote of at least three-fourths of the SEC's 14 members is required to an extend to extend an invitation for membership. Semantics there, Will, he's, you know, 14 members, they're going to pass this with flying colors. I know people were thinking of 13 to 1 vote that AM may not vote. They've been in the loop. They have known this was going to happen. It, it probably will be 14 0, just so everybody's on the same page here. Texas and Oklahoma will be voted in to be members of the SEC. Well, I think you're know, reading a whole lot of reports about this. You know, we'll get into a question a Gators Breakdown Plus member sent in here, Cameron uh, Harris. But before that, Look, this has been going on for quite a while. Uh, at least six months is what uh, the reports are saying. And look, I go back to last year, Will, and the leadership Greg Sankey showed in leading the SEC into a COVID season, making sure the game of football is going to be played in fall 2020. I think he heard, earned a whole lot of kudos from around the country, schools out there with the brand name of Oklahoma, with the brand name of Texas, I think took notice. Um and look, the Big 12, it's it's in pretty good shape. It's in pretty good shape with those two schools. But I think Greg Sankey showed so much last year as far as leadership goes. And who knows? This is adding two teams. It could be 16. I know there's rumors of there's conferences that, that want to go up to 20 teams. I don't know if the SEC will go that far, but they're proactive here in getting two you know, blue bloods of college football. Who knows where this goes? But I tell you, what, when it's all said and done, and we'll get into the question here, this is part of it. Greg Sankey just might be setting himself up for a college football commissioner here because what he's been able to do and then getting these two blue bloods to come over from the Big 12 to the SEC when there's nothing going wrong, there's nothing wrong with the Big 12 uh, and what Texas and Oklahoma are doing there, bringing it over to the SEC speaks volumes for just, I think, the brand recognition of the SEC under what Greg Sankey has built. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Texas and Oklahoma started to get a little bit nervous. They might get left out if they didn't make moves early, right? That mm -hmm. the SEC was going to position itself to be the major decision maker when it came to college football moving forward, and that it was either going to be with Oklahoma and, and Texas or it was going to be without Oklahoma and Texas, right? And you can envision a scenario where maybe they go get Clemson and Ohio State or, you know, that they, they they could have chosen other Blue Bloods, but instead it made sense to sort of raid the Big 12 and and take those Blue Bloods. And, and granted, the, the thing is they've applied for membership. Yeah, they would have done that in public without having a, without having the appropriate votes. They're, they're going to come in. It's now just negotiation in terms of how does it work from a tv contract perspective and what year will it actually be when all that stuff happens and and setting up things moving forward but i think what's really interesting is that the sec now is the lead negotiator at the table for what the playoff is going to look like yeah. right and who's going to be excluded and who's going to be included and so you know i know jay billis was on twitter today talking about how the acc and the big 10 needed to merge or that the acc should actually ask to merge with the sec and try to 
essentially build a professional league is what it would end up looking like at that point if you took those two conferences and put them together because likely it would exclude um, anybody other than maybe the traditional powers you know maybe you go allow a USC to come in or or a Washington or a Nebraska or a team like that that's won national titles but beyond that you just sort of pick and choose and that that's what the SEC has done at this point is that if the SEC decides it wants to expand to 20 heck if the SEC decides it wants to expand to 30 it can just sort of pick and choose the different programs in the country that it decides it wants and at the end of the day those programs are going to be beholden to the SEC rather than the other way around which is kind of how things were um, you know with the NCAA is that the NCAA just sort of got involved and said hey we're you all are the power five is going to have to work together, but you can have this weird thing where you have four playoff teams, but five power conferences and you know, that the rankings are going to be negotiated amongst these different, these different conferences. No more. The sec is the negotiator and everybody Ooh. else gets to just sit there and go, yes, sir. Greg Sankey, tell me what you want me to do, Greg Sankey. And you know, Florida is going to be the benefit of it because the sec is going to be able to sort of set the agenda and, and move things forward. Yeah. Quickly, there's two more thoughts I want to get to. First, Cabron's uh, uh, question here. So, how does how does this move adding Texas and Oklahoma and becoming a super conference compare to Roy Kramer creating the SEC championship game and what it ultimately became? The championship game sent the conference into a different stratosphere, and this move towards a super conference will do the same. Both moves forever change the conference in college football as we know it. We've been blessed with Kramer, Slav, and Sankey. So, Cabron, thank you, man, for uh, being a Gators Breakdown Plus member and then sending that question through the email there. Visionary, Will. I think that's the, that's the words that come through. The, and, and not waiting, you know, the visionaries and being first to come up with these ideas and and, and putting them there where everybody else follows, you know, and, and being first. You know, you can be a visionary and maybe be behind the ball just a little, but this is visionaries and just leading in almost every major college football decision in, since – the early nineties here, the sec has pretty much been at the forefront of, and luckily for, for Kramer, Slav and Sinky here uh, that, you know, luckily for the sec, that's been those guys in charge here and it has set the sec up for bukus of money, even though that I think they somehow butchered the sec deal, sec on CBS deal where they're still not really getting a whole lot of money, <laughs> but they took care of that with the new ESPN uh, Disney deal that will of course get restructured now with the additions of Alabama and, uh, or, um, Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, but my thing is now for the next step, Will, I mean, th- yeah, this is right up there with creating championship games and and, and putting a profile uh, of your conference out there. But now it's just it, – it, it sets up for, I think – well, I don't think the college football playoff is set anymore. I know what, a month ago, two months ago, we were getting, okay, it's 12 teams. That goes by the wayside now. Nobody knows what the fallout's going to be from all this now rearranging of these conferences again, the SEC, I think, is going to get their pick. They're going to get who they want. They're going to be the first ones to to, to kind of settle where they want to be. And then I think decisions will be made for the college football playoff and, and where it goes. But, I mean, just visionaries here that just set the SEC up for, for, for years to come. It's interesting you mentioned that SEC contract with CBS because what I think of – normally you think of the NCAA – as doing things for money. And I think sometimes you do things that are short-sighted because you're trying to maximize your revenue right away. And Mm -hmm. I think what the SEC has really done under really, like you mentioned, excellent leadership is they have maximized power. 
And that power is going to turn into money, right? So <laughs> that ESPN deal with Oklahoma and Tech, there's going to be some extra zeros added to that because of the way the conference is going to be set up. But what the SEC has done is over the last 20 or 25 years has completely taken over college football. I mean, if you look at the national champions, like basically I, I'd say like 2000 and prior, yeah, the SEC won a few national championships, but you, the big boys were really Oklahoma, Miami, Ohio State, Penn State, Nebraska. Those were the teams that sort of – you know, and the SEC contributed, but you know, it wasn't that long ago that Auburn had a perfect season and got left out of the yeah. national championship game, right? That would never happen right now. now, right? And it, and it is kind of interesting that right around that time is when the SEC really started to establish its power. So what I would say is that you know, you mentioned visionaries and and doing things first and all that sort of stuff. But the doing things first, granted, they have generated a ton of money for the conference. But I think what they've really done is that they've given the conference power to dictate how college football is going to be played and dictate how college football is going to um, is going to develop and grow. And this is just one more move that gives the SEC power to dictate its own terms. And those terms are going to long term lead to considerable considerably more revenue. But it wasn't that it's not I, I think it's the revenue follows the power rather than the revenue being the driver for the SEC. And I think that some of these schools, in fact, I would even say Texas, you know, a decade ago, Texas was looking to bolt the Big 12 and it sort of at the last minute got held together. And the reason it got held together is the Big 12 promised them enough money and promised them the ability to have the Longhorn Network and all that sort of stuff and made a bunch of concessions. And now here they are years later, sort of, you know, paying for that from the standpoint of there was a misbet there was a mismatch in terms of the power within the conference whereas the SEC now has really sort of a unified front and no one's going to leave the SEC right Texas isn't going to be able to bow up and say well we're going to leave the SEC said fine we'll just go get somebody else mm -hmm. and uh, and that's really so that to me is the thing is that when you look at the leadership of the SEC commissioners when you look at the leadership of the schools and the athletic directors bringing in just high, high, high level coaches over and over and over again. I mean, you think about it, Old Miss has Lane Kiffin, right? I mean, you look at Mississippi State having Dan Mullen for a really long time. Like all of these schools that are bringing in all of the best coaches and building up these programs into something where they can be the power brokers of college football. That to me is sort of the focus is, is the power, not necessarily the revenue, even though the revenue is certainly going to be pretty significant now. Yeah, absolutely. It will, it will, it will be, it will be massive whenever this, Deal was announced. So we already know the big deal they already signed, but of course that's getting redone uh, with the with the additions. And look, uh, I think another thing is how fast this happens. I mean, some people think it can happen next year. That that to me, look, he's already shown power. Greg Sankey in the SEC has already shown power. You get this where Texas and Oklahoma are somehow in the SEC in 2022. That's just one more extra little flex. I think it's just one more one more show. I got it. I got it three years before I was even supposed to. And and we're going to roll with it. And everybody else is going to have to play catch up. Uh, that that's the, the dominoes of if look, there's already dominoes falling, and we'll we'll see who the Big Ten and the Pac-12 what happens between those conferences. Dominoes are already falling, but you get it to where Texas and Oklahoma are somehow in the SEC in 2022. I don't know what the rest of college football looks like <laughs> at that point uh, when, when you look at it. Four SEC teams at the playoff. That's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right, Will, quickly before we go, what does it mean for Florida in your eyes, Texas and Oklahoma? Look, 
on the surface, you're adding two teams that can have brand recognition, name noteworthiness out there that is on the level of Florida. You're adding two more to the SEC. You're adding two teams that can recruit at the level of Florida. You're adding two teams that, when they when they play, will be you know uh, on the schedule as you'll look at the schedule and you'll say, all right, there's a tough game, there's a tough game. Uh, so it automatically, you know, luckily, look, in, in a way, if you're fans of an expanded playoff, you you better be fans of expanded playoff because with the way the SEC structured now, <laughs> you're going to want more than you're going to be able to want more than to have more than one team going to the college football playoff. But adding Texas and Oklahoma, will it, it makes things tougher. It makes the path a little tougher getting to the SEC championship now and the college football playoff spot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it really means is that the the presidents and the and the SEC in general have recognized maybe quicker than some others what's going to drive the revenue, what's going to drive the power and authority. It used to be that getting to the national championship game, getting to the BCS game, getting to one of those big New Year's Six Bowls is what drove the revenue for your conference. That's not what's going to drive the revenue for your conference anymore. What's going to drive the revenue is having elite matchups during the regular season. And you know, one of the reasons I didn't like the 12-team playoff is because college football has always been an exclusionary league where the regular season meant a ton. And so, you know, Florida lost to Ole Miss, even though if Ole Miss wasn't all that good, it meant a ton for Florida because that one loss could cost you the season. However, if you exclude, let's say like, you know, let's just say that you wound up with two 20 team conferences or something like that. Right. And you played that and then you wound up with, say, like a 14 team playoff, kind of like the NFL. Basically, you have an AFC and an NFC, right? And mm-hmm. the, NF- the AFC is the SEC and the and the uh, NFC is, is uh, you know, the Big Ten combination with the ACC and the, and the Pac-12, whatever, whatever it ends up being. Let's say you got a 40 team league and then you play a 14 team tournament like in the NFL. That's still interesting because you give me Oklahoma LSU one week and then you give me Florida Ohio State the next week and then you give me Georgia versus you know Georgia versus USC the next week that's going to be just as interesting as some of those NFL nat- matchups that you get and the exclusionary part of it is going to be that even that because I think that would actually narrow the recruiting where the recruiting would start to be much more level because there'd be more teams that thought they had a shot. Now you've got something where anybody who gets into the tournament can win. And maybe that becomes a, um, it's exclusionary from the standpoint of there will be no Cincinnati. There will be no coastal Carolina. Mm -hmm. There will be no UCF in that particular aspect, but it'll be awesome because you have the big boys playing every single weekend. I think that's the vision eventually. And this is just sort of the start of it, right? Is that when you get Oklahoma and Texas in the conference, you know, the SEC has been known for years as there are no weeks off when you're playing those eight games. And all this does is add to that, right? Is these are these are teams that compare to LSU, compare to Florida, compare to Auburn in history, in recruiting, in coaching, all those sorts of things in the in the level of athletes that they have. And so the SEC is going to continue to be a buzzsaw. People are going to respect it even more when a team makes its way through it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just going to add to the prestige, the power. And like I said, I think where this is going to go is that they're going to have to really sort of have either one or two super conferences that turns into what the real college football championship is going to be based on. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it, too. Uh, Will, quickly, pod, pods or divisions? 
uh, I want divisions. The four the four team pods just doesn't seem like enough. I get that it sort of evens things out in terms of the way teams would play, and you can set it up to where every player who comes to the university would get to play every team and that sort of stuff. But um, you'd also get very very uneven schedules, right? You can envision a scenario where you know this year we're looking at going, oh, we get Alabama this year. That that impacts how we pick the SEC East. Same way last year, Georgia get, got Alabama last year. That's how that impact impacted us picking the SEC East. Well, what if you end up with a schedule where like there's a pod that just for whatever reason, one of those pods happens to be down one year. Well, now you've got a team coming out. So I guess it kind of depends on how they decide who the champion is, how they decide who goes to the playoffs. I wouldn't want someone to be able to skate through having played a pod that happens to be down and maybe only have to play one or two really tough games. The whole point of bringing in Oklahoma and Texas is that you get to play, um, you know, a series of really tough games. And that when you come out of this gauntlet, everybody knows you're the best team in the country because of, because you won the sec. Yeah. I like the idea of pods better, but like you said, it has to be done. Right. And I don't know the formula. I don't know. I mean, teams change uh, cycles of teams. Who's good. Who's bad. It does change. I like the idea of pods, as you said, because you get to play other teams a lot more, but they're, I, I don't know if it changes. I don't know if you change pods. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of rotating teams in the pod every so often. I, I think that would be cool. I think that would be a, a pretty cool way of doing it, just to maybe hopefully avoid what you're, what you're talking about. Teams change, teams go up and down, um, rotate the pods every two seasons or something like that. I don't know. Just, I, I'd, just I'd, I'd actually like to – I'd like them to keep the East and the West and then just yeah. schedule schedule things based on record from the previous year, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're the first-place team in the in the East, you're going to play a first-place schedule. If yep. you're the last-place team in the East, you're going to play a last-place schedule, and that way you end up with hopefully – more parity because you know if you're Alabama and you're constantly winning the West, you're going to have to go through the top four teams in the East, as well as your own conference, in order to in order to come out again that next year. Yeah, something like that would be awesome. All right, Will, uh, reading reaction, what you got coming on? No uh, YouTube channels hopping up and down, and uh, I know you you got a certain article on the way for a, a rival quarterback. Yeah, we're almost up to a thousand. We're almost up to 900 subscribers over there at the Read Reaction YouTube channel. Um, Nick Newton and I are doing a stand up and holler episode pretty much every week now. And during the season, um, that's that's I think going to be really interesting. So everybody go over there and check that out if you if you have an opportunity. And then I do have an article coming either probably I'm not going to get it finished tonight, but try to get it out in the next day or so. Looking at JT Daniels, there's obviously been a lot of a little hype, a lot of hype associated with those four games he played last year. And the question is, is is that justified or is that not justified? And then what does that mean for Kirby Smart, right? That if if JT Daniels plays well next year and Georgia still can't get the job done, what does that say about Kirby Smart? And what does that say about his time there at, at, at Georgia? Because, you know, if, if we had a team that was recruiting the way Georgia is and we got good quarterback play and we still couldn't pull it out, what would that mean for us? So, uh, And what, how would we feel about the coaching staff? I'm, we obviously have strong feelings about the coaching staff at Florida right now anyway. Um, so anyway, I think there's some pressure on Georgia this year, and so I wanted to write about it and write about whether that's justified and, and what I've seen with JT Daniels so far. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he uh, maybe it was bet online for Heisman odds or something like that, but JT Daniels had the top – Heisman odds. So, I mean, if he's getting that love and Georgia still doesn't find a way to win a championship, yeah, yeah, a, a lot of 
look outside of Athens, those questions are have been asked over and over again and, and joked about over and over again. That that fan base is going to have to start asking that question a whole lot if if JT Daniels if he does like I I think to your point, Will, I think he's going to be a solid quarterback. I don't know how good he'll be. He'll be solid. But if he is really good and they still find a way, like what if that defense doesn't come around and falls off and that's Kirby's baby, that's his side of the ball, and they still don't win it? Yeah, I think a lot of questions can be raised there. All right, Will, good stuff, man. Looking forward to that article and um, hopefully some Georgia slander in there as well at the same time. But uh, Oh, you know it, buddy. You know it. <laughs> I know you like to sneak it in there sometimes. Uh, so that, that, that'd be that, that'd be something to look out for there. So uh, um, that's Will, Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSCC and his site, readingreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SBC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>